You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Dr Kane Polidano has done some number crunching that shows a direct correlation between enrolments in VET and uh, reduction in crime statistics. And it's really great to have you with us, Kane. And I wonder if we can start talking about the study first and the kind of happy accident of Victoria deregulating VET enrolments when New South Wales didn't. Sure. Um, in fact, there was a, this was part, these reforms were part of a national agreement to um, introduce an entitlement in, in, in vocational education. What that really meant was that um, it expanded the number of places in training, but also students were given, um, I guess, greater agency in choosing whatever course they wanted. So in the past, it was really government that decided the number of places in training, but um, it's part of the national reforms. Um, it was a, there was a change whereby the funding would just follow student enrolments. So there's really... And the thing is, is that in each state, they introduced these reforms at different times and introduced different aspects of the reforms. So that in Victoria, for instance, um, there was a lot of... Uh, it, it was a, there was really no cap, whereas in New South Wales, the cap was, was uh, kept in place. But really what happened, or in the period that we're looking at, is a period between 2010 and 2013 where Victoria introduced a, um, this entitlement and it was uncapped. Whereas in New South Wales, for whatever reason, they were just slower to introduce this entitlement. So between 2010 2013, Victoria had this entitlement, but in New South Wales, they still operated under the old system where governments decided the number of places in training. So that's why you see this big expansion in Victoria in vocational education and training participation, which didn't happen in New South Wales during this period. And so you could compare then ABS data and, and other data to have a look at the, uh, the enrolments for students and yep. then the, the crime statistics as well. So tell us what you found. Sure. So we did use, we used postcode level data. So we had crime rates at the postcode level in both Victoria and New South Wales. We tracked them over time from 2006 all the way through to 2013, which is the end of our period. And what we saw is in Victoria, there was a change in the rate of crime, in drug crime, in uh, property crime, and also crimes against the person um, relative to New South Wales where things really remained constant. So, and that change really did coincide with the introduction of these reforms that expanded uh, VET enrolments in Victoria. So we, we observe around a 5% uh, reduction in the personal crime rates in Victoria, about 11% reduction in property crime rates and about a 13% reduction in drug crime rates relative to New South Wales. And, and I guess... I said this reform. Sorry, sorry, Kane. And, and I guess there's a range of variables that go into um, one's likelihood or the propensity of someone to commit a crime. Can you be really confident from, from your research that this reduced crime rate that you've tracked in Victoria is due to the increased VET enrolments? Fantastic question. So we can never, I could never testify in court and put my hand on my heart and say all of this effect is just related to the increase in vet participation. But what we do is we, we do observe, as you say, we do observe right at the time that there was this introduction of the reform in Victoria, we, we do see a, a, a deviation in the trend in crime that coincides with the, the timing of the introduction of this reform. We also do control for a whole range of other factors um, that may have affected crime rates at this time. So we, we control for differences in trends between the two states in um, economic growth. We also control for um, earnings between the two states that may have grown at different rates. 
um, which may have explained this, uh, this deviation in the crime rates. We also control for differences in the trajectory, in the differences in the um, uh, trends in crime that were present in the data prior to the introduction, and to the extent that they continued into the post-reform period, then we control for these as well. So, for whatever data we have available. Um, to try and control for these other factors that may have um, influenced the deviation in trends. We've controlled for them, but we can't be absolutely 100% sure that we've controlled for everything. So, you know, the readers should really take this into account when they look at the report. But I guess what we, what we say at the end is that um, there is, this is strong evidence that there has been uh, an effect in Victoria that's related to vet participation, but we can't be 100% sure that this is absolutely just related um, to, to the uh, Victorian vet reforms. And I think, I mean, there are lots of studies that show us that education, and this is, uh, you know, high school, primary school education absolutely um, <clears throat> reduces uh, crime rates and we do know that in our in our criminal justice system or the justice system in general that many of the people in that system uh, haven't finished high school for instance but this is the first study I understand that can really show up that post-secondary education does has a similar effect. Yeah look I think that's that's right and it's a important point too. All of the evidence to date has really been focused on um, schooling and what impacts uh, schooling has on crime. So the way that they do this in the literature is they basically look at where there's been a reform, like, like what we've done here, what, we, what they do is they look at where there's been an increase in the minimum school leaving age in one state and compare the changes in crime that happen um, for this cohort compared to um, the changes in crime that have happened over the same period in a state where there wasn't an increase in the minimum age. So it's a very similar sort of setup that's, that's, that, that's, um, that we've looked at is, is really very much the same way that this has been looked at um, for schooling. So we've only, at, at to this point, we've only seen evidence that schooling uh, reduces crime rates. But I think the, the bigger point is that you're right, exactly right, that if you look at the, um, the statistics uh, on people who are in uh, juvenile justice system, who are in um, the prison system, these people have very low rates of education. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's that increasing education leads to reductions in crime um, for the same um, reasons that Dylan just mentioned. There could be other reasons why these people have both low rates of education and more likely participation in crime. So maybe they have personal traits. For instance, they may um, they may not, they may have difficulty in um, dealing with people. They may have. They may have personal characteristics that mean that they both struggle in the education system and they also are more likely to, to commit crime. So um, what our study really does, I guess for the first time, is try to get at what the, um, a causal story, not just a correlational story. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Kane Polidano. He's from the University of Melbourne and is the author of a report called Vocational Education and Training, a Pathway to the Straight and Narrow. And Kane, another really interesting aspect of the report is, um, I guess, the cost saving that goes on with um, investments in vocational edu education and training. You note in the report that the community saves around about 18 cents on crime costs such as health, loss, productivity and rehab for every dollar spent on VET. And I guess when we talk about education funding, we tend to look at it 
I guess, in a bit of a silo in terms of what the previous government might have spent. Do you think governments do adequately understand the flow-on effects of investing in this sort of training, in TAFE and, and VET training, as well as schools and universities? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I think it's, it's kind of hard. It's hard to say. Look, I'm sure that governments do, at one level, um, think that uh, education does have spill-offs for the community, in, not just in terms of reduction in crime, but also reductions in health costs and, and a whole range of other spillovers, technology, growth. I think governments are aware of it, but I think the problem is, is that these benefits from education are really difficult to measure, but it's really easy to measure the costs. So what that means is that governments tend to think... When, especially when there's budgetary pressures, which there are at the moment, governments tend to focus very much on the costs and, and kind of don't want to talk too much about the benefits. I think that they understand that there are certainly spill-offs to the community, but because they're not measured, um, I think that the focus is often, in my opinion at least, perhaps too much on the actual costs. Um, and those costs are immediate, whereas the benefits, and that's the other way that you should think about it as well, is that government costs are immediate and they're only they're, they're short-term, but the benefits from, well, the spillovers, these benefits that we talk about in terms of reductions in crime, health, uh, health expenditure, so on and so forth, they accrue through our life course. So when you... And, and that's why I think you could argue that our estimates, that 18-cent estimate is an under uh, representation of the true cost because when you think of it over a lifetime of benefits and only a short-run um, increasing the incursion of costs... Um, it, the, the economics um, really does really does um, stack up. Yeah, and can we talk about the life course, Kane? Because you did actually look at different age brackets um, in this study, and uh, I think um, we've seen internationally a lot of countries investing in vocational education and training, particularly um, for those um, after the the financial crisis, as uh, we need to reskill um, uh, older people in in industries that have. Um, you know, disappeared in, in some instances. What What's happening here across the age, the life course? Yeah, that's right. So we, we weren't too sure about um, whether investing in, in later life, that is investing in vocational education and training in later life, would have the same spill-offs in terms of crime reductions as investments uh, early on. But um, what we do find is that, in fact, the investments beyond, or increasing in participation, I should say, in VET, beyond 20, just does seem to have a bigger impact um, on reducing crime than investments uh, within the, 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 the window of the 16 to, say, 20-year-olds where people are just out of um, school. And I guess the reason, well, we don't really know, we don't really have the data to be able to say definitively why this is, but our hypothesis is that yeah, in, in that window when kids leave school, young people leave school, a lot of the crime, and even though the crime rates at this time are quite high, um, a lot of this crime is being driven by negative peers and VET doesn't necessarily um, have a big role to play in um, changing people's peer groups. But for the older group, because um, over a life course, people do tend to move out of crime. If the, the juveniles who are committing crimes over time as they mature, they tend, their crime rates tend to decline. But in the older group, those ones who participate you continue to participate in crime into their 20s and beyond. They're sort of harder cases. These are people who are, are really disadvantaged in the labour market and, and they're more disadvantaged generally in life. So I think it kind of makes sense that vet at this age group, that, that is 20 and older, 
um, has a bigger impact because it really does open up employment opportunities for these people that they otherwise wouldn't have had um, available to them. And it also gives them um, a sense of meaning and purpose and perhaps introduces, uh, sorry, it perhaps also increases their, their confidence and, and reason for being. So, yeah, we think that VET is really important in changing people's um, life trajectories uh, in, this older, in this older period of time or later period of time rather than um, just straight out of school. It seems like a very valuable study, Kane, and I wonder, um, wh- you know, where this might take us in, in uh, you know, we often hear at the state government level as a tough on crime um, coming from governments and also we know that uh, vet enrolments are now uh, going down. So what's likely to happen, do you think, mm-hmm. going by your, your research? Sure. I mean, I guess the first point to make is that we would say that these defects on vet, the effects, the effects of vet on crime rates are really quite low. So these are really quite small effects, but they're still very. The payoffs are still high because crime is just so costly in the community. But in terms of the impacts on the rates of crime, these impacts are really quite small. So I think that the point is, and this is not just true of vet, it's also true of schooling and a lot of other studies that have looked at the, the impacts of education. So I think that education is one part of the picture, um, but there's also a whole range of other um, uh, there's a whole range of other programs that really need to be put in place. But I think, moreover, the um, the evidence that uh, tough on crime policies work is really is is very limited. So while I'd say it's fair to say that education uh, returns in education in, in reducing crime. Are, a small, um, so are um, the tough on crime, uh, tough on crime policy. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that um, you know education is the silver bullet. It's certainly not. It's part of the picture, but I think evidence suggests that the tough on crime policies are very expensive and they're, they're, they don't really seem to work. No, oh, and we've seen in, in um, you know, recent news and we now have a Royal Commission uh, into uh, the juvenile justice in the Northern Territory and I think we can see what tough on crime can do to someone's life. And um, we really appreciate your time, Kane, and uh, thanks so much for sharing the findings with us. So, uh, Dr Kane Polidano's report, Vocational Education and Training, a Pathway to the Straight and Narrow, and uh, he's a research fellow at the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social research and it's really great talking to you thanks no problem thank you thanks very much and the afl is so big and so central to the social and sporting life of regional suburban neighborhoods that it needs to rethink its role and be more engaged at the grassroots of the game according to our next guest in an essay in the latest griffith review jonathan west looks at the benefits uh, of afl clubs to the life of a community especially smaller communities and how this contrasts with the neglect the afl machine shows many clubs uh, jonathan's a regular contributor to the griffith review he spent 18 years at harvard uni uh, including at the harvard business school and now lives in the beautiful huon valley in tassie a very passionate afl state and a really great essay jonathan lots to think about and i wonder what prompted you to to look at the afl uh, not just as a sporting code but as a corporation with responsibilities well the afl asked me to uh, look at and provide them with some advice about uh, the health of of community football and the potential role of a Tasmanian team in the national AFL competition. So I was in the fortunate position of being able to 
get access to a lot of statistics and talk to a lot of people who keep the game uh, thriving and keep trying to moving at the local level. And what I found was quite amazing. Um, one of the first findings was in the North Tasmanian town or city of Burnie, which had the unfortunate uh, reality of being the the city in Australia with the highest unemployment of young men for a period of time. Uh, 21% of men aged between age 25 in Burnie were neither employed nor working. And because young AFL players were very much in the same, uh, well, they're in the bullseye of the same demographic, we were very interested to see how many young AFL players would be unemployed. And so we surveyed uh, the AFL players and the clubs in the region and came up with the startling, or at least startling to me, finding that not a single one of the, our AFL players in Burnie were unemployed. And that really set me thinking, why is that? Why is it that these young men who share so much in common with the, the other young men who are unemployed, why is, is it that not one of them is unemployed. And I asked a lot of people involved with football at that community level, and they thought the answer was quite obvious, and in retrospect, I think it is. The first reason is that football gives these people the skills they need to be valuable employees. They show up, they're disciplined, they know about hard work, they know how to work with teams, uh, they they know that if you work hard and you try to improve, you will. Um, they accept direction from, from more experienced people. In other words, they gain the sort of things that make them good employees. And then, if they're at risk of becoming unemployed, someone from the football community talks to someone else and says, hey, I've got a young bloke here who's out looking to be, at risk of being out of a job. I hear you're looking for people. I can recommend this guy. He's not just a good player, but because he's a good player, it means that he's likely to be a good employee. So the, the AFL at that level plays a irreplaceable, quite irreplaceable role in the lives of these young people and therefore in the life of the community. And Jonathan, that, um, that, that finding which you outlined at the beginning of your essay got me immediately interested, I guess, in the, the positive impact that AFL can have at that community level. And, and you, you note that this, uh, I suppose, local grade AFL has survived relatively well in, until, I guess, fairly recently when other social institutions have diminished, such as churches, local political party affiliations and the like. Yes, that's right. When you look at communities like Burnie or like my own community in the Huon Valley here, a lot of the traditional community organisations that, that bound people together and gave them a sense of purpose have declined. Uh, the churches try hard, but uh, attendance at church has dropped precipitously. Um, government organisations try, but they often confront young people, particularly young people at risk as, as authority figures, as people you have to kind of get past in order to get what you want to get in particular. So very often in, in local communities uh, and even in quite large parts of cities, 
the the only organisation that can reach and and win respect from particularly the young men um, at risk of unemployment, of drug dependency, of criminality. Very often, the only organisation that can reach them um, are these sporting organisations, particularly the AFL as the nation's largest sporting organisation. It's really interesting, uh, I mean, because you did start by looking at the, the possibility, I suppose, of a, a Tasmanian team playing in the AFL at that elite level, that uh, it, it made me think of swinging political seats, uh, Jonathan, that Tassie hasn't got a national team, uh, but Western Sydney does, and yet Western Sydney is certainly not a heartland of AFL, but Tasmania is. Can you talk to that? Well, this is one of the points I, I make in the essay, that the great benefit of having a, an AFL team in Tasmania would not be to bring in more dollars to the AFL or to attract more tourists to Tasmania or anything of that economic type. The great benefit would be to integrate the football world and provide a path for young players so that they could see that you can go to the very top um, and remain in Tasmania, that if you want to succeed, you don't have to leave Tasmania, which is what a lot of young people here in, in a wide range of fields believe. If you're good, you'll leave. If, if, you, if you're aspiring to stay in Tasmania as a young person, it's because you're not concerned about high performance. I'm generalising, of course, but uh, it's a, it's, it, it is a, tr a valid generality, I think. Um, and so when, if you look at the AFL as if it were a business you would say, well, why bother with Tasmania? It's already a football state. There's no new market, no new money. Let's go to Western Sydney where there's a lot of people and perhaps they can be won over. But if you look at football as a community organisation and you say, well, what is our responsibility and what could we do for the community, then it's very obvious it would be enormously beneficial to Tasmania and to the long-term health of the game to have a Tasmanian team in the competition. Um, so it depends the perspective you take. And I think it's, it's regrettable that the AFL increasingly acts as if it were a business, a corporation, when it clearly isn't. It doesn't have shareholders. It doesn't have to make a profit. It doesn't have to make a return on investment. In other words, it doesn't undertake its activities in order to make money. It makes money in order to undertake its activities. So it's the cart and the horse are, should be in the opposite direction. And if, if the AFL's leadership took that view, then it, I think it would be quite obvious that there should be a team in the Tasmanian competition because it, it's a part of their responsibility to the community. And that's something that, that I hadn't thought a lot about, Jonathan, because you, you kind of think of the AFL as, as being really big business these days and it hadn't occurred to me that they are, in fact, a, a non-profit organisation. And if we kind of look ahead and the AFL continues to, I guess, not engage in those um, grassroots affiliations and, and seeing the benefit that can have if it, if it properly engages with football at the local level, at the community level, where it really matters, do you see maybe other sports filling that void, such as soccer, which has a really high participation rates among young people? I think there's a very real risk in Tasmania, as there is elsewhere, and, and you I call it a risk because I'm an AFL supporter, but it's a big opportunity from 
soccer's point of view, soccer is strong among young people in Tasmania. Were the national soccer competition to uh, admit a team from Tasmania and young athletes could see the path to play for their for their own state. And Tasmania very strongly identify with Tasmania. That's people will often say when they're travelling overseas, when they're asked where are you from, they will say Tasmania, which is part of Australia. So Tasmanian young people would love to play for their state. And if uh, soccer was to locate a, a, an elite level team or to, to permit one to join the national competition, then what is happening at the moment would stop. What is happening at the moment is people start by playing soccer or basketball and at a certain age, uh, in their early teens, they switch to the AFL because the AFL is the pathway to, to serious professional sport still, it's regarded. But were there to be an elite team here, they would not need to switch. In fact, they'd have much less incentive to switch. Um, and so there's a big opportunity and the and the momentum of soccer, which has taken very much a, a ground swell up approach to building the game, the momentum of soccer would accelerate and the decline of the AFL would unfortunately accelerate, in my opinion. And um, we're speaking with uh, Jonathan West about his essay called Back to the Future in the latest Griffith, and I'm, I'm glad you've got a cuckoo clock there. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan, I haven't had one for years. No, I'm very happy you've got that. Made my day. We're really backwards down here. We should be cooking. Well, do, talking about backwards, let's look a little bit back in time to my childhood. We, um, I grew up in the northeast suburbs of Melbourne, and at that time, uh, the area where I grew up was a Collingwood intake area. So pretty much everyone barracked for Collingwood because right. if you were if you played for a local club, that was the club you got drafted to. But that's really fundamentally changed now, hasn't it? And that is Im also impacting on this kind of grassroots, um, at the grassroots level. Yes. It, when we, we were growing up, um, large parts of Australia were part of the hinterland of the major clubs, particularly the Melbourne clubs. The AFL decided at a certain to sever that link and to move to the current nationwide draft system. So we now have some clubs that have a very strong regional identity and therefore an, a deep roots in their community. I'm, I'm thinking of Geelong, of the Adelaide clubs, of West Australian clubs. These clubs have very strong roots in their community and they probably wouldn't understand much about what I was talking about. But when you look at the half of all the AFL clubs, or AFL clubs, sorry, are in Victoria, and half of them, in fact, are in Melbourne, those clubs have increasingly lost their their deep connection with their um, regional community, and they've severed those links that you're describing. One of the things I think could be done to to rebuild the role of the the, the elite AFL clubs in the community is to recognise that these clubs are no longer based on a particular suburb and and move to give each of the main Melbourne clubs a distinct part of the country, which it is their responsibility to nurture, both from the point of view of talent development and from the point of view of a role in the community. 
And I think it's been interesting watching uh, in the wake of the recent announcement on the launch of the National Women's League in the AFL with um, really kind of strong affiliations that particular players have with their clubs. For example, Daisy Pierce kind of questioned whether she would continue to play on if she wasn't able to play for, for Melbourne where she'd sort of been for some years and, and you point out um, interestingly that those players female players from Tasmania and this is at a time when female participation in AFL has increased have been allocated to to Greater Western Sydney which um, you know I mean imagine if, if they could play for, for a local Tasmanian team Well the, the, uh, they've changed that decision since I wrote the piece actually ah. And now they've said, well, we're going to allocate you to North Melbourne, um, which makes a minor difference, in my opinion. Was that due, to, it, was that due to um, concerns from players? There was concerns from the community, there were concerns from politicians, and there were concerns from players. For female AFL players, uh, the idea that you would have to choose at the age of 17, 18 to move to Western Sydney if you wanted to pursue a career when there just isn't the money and the incentive, the, the, the large, the great proportion of young women players say, I'm not willing to, to do that. Um, a lot of young AFL male players say, I'm not willing to, to take that risk unless I know I'm going to be uh, put on the list. But to do it for women when there just isn't the money and whatever would have eliminated most young women. Um, but there's no reason at all why Tasmania couldn't field a women's team. Uh, many people in Tasmania said we would like to participate. Um, and once again, the, the AFL said, no, um, you're p- part of our bigger strategy and our bigger strategy is to support, well, first they said GWS, and then they said, oh, well, what about North Melbourne? So it's looking upon people as sort of cogs in a corporate machine and overlooking these these deep and important bonds that people feel with clubs that that are part of their community. And I think, I mean, you come from that that business perspective, Jonathan. And and as you said at the beginning, uh, the AFL asked you to to look at at these issues. And I wonder, I mean, do you have the ear of the AFL? Are, are they listening? Uh, a lot of people are listening because a lot of people recognise that behind the the great success at the top level, the the grassroots are, are withering and a lot of people are concerned about this. The point I make to people is that a not-for-profit organisation needn't be a low-performance amateur organisation. Some of the highest-performance organisations in the world are not-for-profit. And I point to my own former university, Harvard, Harvard is arguably the most successful and prominent university in the world. It's a not-for-profit. It raises money in order to pursue research and to educate people, and it spends a large amount of money ensuring that anybody who qualifies can come there, regardless of their financial means. And most of the programs and activities that Harvard undertakes lose money. That's perfectly fine. That's not why we're doing it. And yet it's a superbly run institution. It undertakes some of the best research in the world and anybody who visits it sees an organisation committed and achieving excellence. Similarly, large parts of the healthcare system are not-for-profits. So there's no reason why 
an organisation like the AFL or any major sporting body which doesn't have shareholders, doesn't have a profit incentive, why it can't be extremely professionally run um, and achieve a lot of what it does achieve and still continue to have those roots in the community and function as an effective not. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting essay, Jonathan, and, and one that really points to a need for, for the game to flourish in, in Australia, not just because um, a lot of us really love it, but drawing on the really, uh, and enacting those really positive social impacts that AFL can have on the community, and particularly on regional towns, as you point out in relation to Bernie. Um, before you go, though, it's a really even competition this year. I wonder if you've got a tip for the Premiership. Um, my tip is GWS. I'm I'm hoping for the good of the game that the grand final is between Sydney and GWS. And in my opinion, and I watch it a fair bit, uh, on their best day, GWS is better than any team in the competition. Um, and I think on their best day, they're better than the best of Hawthorne. So that's my tip. Mm, wait and see. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jonathan. And, um, yeah, anyone can read Jonathan's essay in the latest Griffith, Griffith Review, sorry, which is called Our Sporting Life, and Jonathan's contribution is called Back to the Future. You're tuned to Triple R. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. And last week, in a passionate speech at the US Democratic Convention, Michelle Obama spoke about her experience waking up every day in a house built by slaves. But here in Australia, we're still in denial about the effective slavery of Indigenous children, men and women, that took place over many decades. It was a government policy that young children were stolen from their families, sent to institutions, and then sent on to work in white homes as domestics, where abuse and neglect was common. And in a film screening at MIF called Servant or Slave, we hear directly from Indigenous women who not only served as domestics but had their wages stolen from them. And the director of this powerful film is Stephen McGregor. Uh, you might know his film Croker Island Exodus which screened at MIF in 2012 and uh, there's a couple of chances um, to see Servant or Slave as part of MIF. I think they're sold out and um, a big congratulations on the film Stephen and thanks for coming into Triple R. Thank you and uh, thank you for having me. And uh, I wonder um, why did you want to tell this story? Um, well, I think this is a story that's part of Australia's history and no-one knows about it, really, except the people that it's affected. But, I mean, I was approached by Mitchell Stanley, the producer, and while I liked the outline and the brief, it wasn't until I'd actually met the ladies that I said, look, I'm in, because they were so courageous and beautiful and had an opinion and had a life and they were just ready to tell their story. And I just... Once meeting them, you get the sense that they, they're going to be brave, they're not going to hold back and they're just going to speak from the heart and that's when it clinched it for me. And there's a great many um, Indigenous women who could tell similar stories, I imagine. How did these five women come to be involved in the film? Well, that was the hard part because it's a lot of people's stories, you know, and we're, we're using five people who are all residents or inmates, I suppose, of the Cootamundra Aboriginal Girls Training Home in New South Wales so we use those five ladies to sort of tell a broader, bigger story because we just couldn't tell everyone's story. I mean, we'd love to, but, you know, part of the um, the outreach program of this is we want to set up a website so people can put in their stories, you know, post them. So we just build up this archive and these stories that, you know, people have access to. And we, we heard um, from the Wemberg sisters, and I wonder if you can tell us uh, something of their lives, a very, very tragic story and very proud, powerful women. 
Yeah, in the film there's three sisters, the Wenberg sisters, Rita, Valerie and Adelaide, and I think they were one of ten, and each of those ten children were taken from their parents due to the government's opinion that they were being neglected. But two of those children passed away in care, so, you know, there's the irony right there. And it's like some of the children, I think it was Rita and Valerie, they grew up not knowing they had older siblings and didn't meet them until they got actually placed in the homes and were introduced to them for the first time in their lives when like three years old, going, you know, being told, well, I'm your sister. It's like, really? I just thought I had other brothers and sisters back home. So it's a tragic story for the Wenberg parents. Um, they never stopped fighting to get their children back. They continued to fight the government, fight, you know, the legislation, but they were denied time and time again. And sadly, they all, you know, the father, you know, passed away destitute, drinking in Hyde Park in Sydney. And, you know, though he always loved his children, he would, that, the government and the, the legislation just broke him. And the mother passed away, you know, at a very young age. And we heard, um, I mean, each of those Wenberg sisters in the film um, had different stories. So they uh, were in uh, an institution and then went on to be domestics. And what, I mean, it was just, I was just thinking about, you know, 14, 15-year-old girls being, not only being institutionalised, but then forced to go and, and work as domestics for people they didn't know and people that are often abusive and cruel. And I I mean, how many how many people had this experience, I wonder? Well, Cootamundra Girls Home, I think about 350 to 500 girls went through that home. So they would have had, all had similar experiences. But on a national scale, you know, it's in its thousands. And it also just didn't happen to girls. It happened to boys as well, you know. They got put through homes and trained up and thrown out to work in stock camps, you know, for nothing, for rations, flour, sugar and tea and tobacco and clothes and that. And just their labour was, you know, um, exploited. And while in some situations they were paid, that money was held in trust by the government. And there's a wonderful moment in the film where the irony of that money, the stolen wages was actually employed to finance... The, you know, the taking of children. So they, through that stolen wages, people's, you know, Aboriginal people's wages and Torres Strait Islands wages, that was actually funding the system that took the children. So bizarre. Mm, it, it's um, an incredibly powerful film, yet it's it's kind of quite simple. We hear from these five women and, and there's interviews with historians and including uh, Larissa Berent as well as part of it. So it's, it's quite, quite straightforward, I guess, in its, um, its approach to telling these stories, but it's incredibly powerful. There's a, there's a moment, I think about halfway through, where you know I was nearly reduced to tears just hearing from one of these women recount her experience, how she was abused in this place. And, and I think Larissa Berent makes this point that with these sorts of, I guess, um, historical accounts of Australia's past and the tragic things that happened, there could be a tendency to think that, that they are in the past. But what comes through very strongly from this film is that people are living with this every day. The emotional baggage and the, the, the damage that's occurred is kind of cross-generational and, and still very much lived by people. No, that's absolutely right. These women live it all, you know, every day of their lives and, you know, their grandchildren have lived it, their children have lived it. So it, it totally is cross generational and I think you know our approach was not to overcomplicate the story let these ladies tell their story and if we you know and it's an emotional story if you have emotion you're going to touch an audience 
you know, and because it was such a tough subject matter, visually we didn't want to push that line either. So that's why we went in a sort of more of an abstract, almost beautiful imagery in mm-hmm. a sense. So there was a bit of balance. So it's not just or ah, you know. Mm-hmm. So so you'd give what was looking as to give the audience a sense of relief, let them exhale. So it's not all doom and gloom. And we, I mean, we saw archival footage in there as well. And a lot of that archival footage of these young children in institutions is of smiling young children. And that couldn't help but, I mean, knowing the story behind it and seeing grandmothers and and older women talking about what was really going on made that archival footage very poignant. And I wonder, I mean, did you carefully select the footage that you you played or is there a lot of it around? There is. I mean, we went through a lot of archive material and it was amazing to look over that stuff because I love archive, you know, black and white photos. And it is really sad when you look at these photos of smiling kids and you know what happened to them. But the fact is you point a camera at a kid, they're going to smile. You know, it's just sort of an instinctual thing. And like, I mean, these ladies said they they didn't know any different. That was life. That was what was presented to them. They didn't know what was on the other side until they got older. So what their experience is, what they thought they was their given path in life. And I mean, talking about definitions, I mean, you're, you've got it in the title, servant or slave. Uh, talking about those definitions is important, isn't it? Because I, I started by speaking about Michelle Obama's speech and this idea that Australia didn't have slavery. I think your film really questions that. Absolutely. I mean, anybody who'd ask, you know, what are you doing? Oh, we're working on this film. What's it about? Oh, sla- slavery in Australia? No, that didn't happen. It's like, well, it actually did. And that was taxi drivers. You know, when I'd be with... Because I live in Darwin, so I'd be going back to Sydney to, you know, do bits and pieces on the film. And anyone, you know, my family or... Oh, they knew. But just people not um, knowing the stolen generation world. I mean, they knew kids were stolen, but they didn't know the next step. And it was slavery, like Larissa says, you know, you abuse kids, you make them work, you don't pay them money, you hold them against their will. There's no other word for it. It is slavery. And we've heard about um, the issue of compensation being raised, particularly around the apology to the stolen generations in, in 2008. But with this particular case, which I guess a lot of people don't know much about, but this is a case of wages being directly stolen from people. And, and the film uh, talks about a, a Senate inquiry, I think in 2006, which led to the Queensland government offering up, I think it was $6,000 compensation to affected... Per person. That, that's right. Um, why, why are governments so, so slow and so unwilling to offer up compensation? Is it simply that it opens a can of worms because there's so many people who'd be affected and be entitled to it? I think that is the answer. It'll just open up a can of worms and litigation. They just don't want to deal with it. So they just keep burying it. But, you know, that 2006 um, Senate inquiry said there should be, you know, this should be looked at. And to this day, there's no national policy or no national position on how to handle that. Yeah, the Queensland stuff, Peter Beatty, I think, you know, 54 million bucks or something. So it worked out. Originally, it was $4,000 per person for 30 years of, you know, unpaid work. Well, I mean, he put mm. the number himself, didn't he, at half yeah. a billion dollars? Half a billion dollars of stolen wages. Yeah, that's right. And they, you know, those stolen wages went into building hospitals and roads and stealing children from their families. So, I mean, I, I think it is exactly that. And the thing is, because it's a state-by-state approach, there's no national approach. And I think that's what needs to be done if this is going to be tackled fairly and properly. And this idea that, I mean, you know, money is important. And I think a lot of uh, families who 
lost those wages uh, then are in a situation where there's nothing to pass on to the next generation and a lot of trauma associated with the experiences had in those places as well. So I wonder how, where do we go to from here? I mean, is it, is, is it really government has to lead here or, or, or what's, what's the next step, I wonder? Well, I mean, I think the community's calling out and I think the government has to listen. And, I mean, it, I think it's about... It is about money, but I think it's also about recognising the faults in the system and, you know, just saying we screwed up, you know, and it wasn't right, it was unfair, it was exploitive, and just, you know, say sorry. I mean, I know sorry's been said before, but I think it just has to be acknowledged for these people. Yeah, it's um, we're speaking with um, Stephen McGregor. His film Servant or Slave is screening at MIF and uh, it's already sold out and you're doing a Q&A tonight, Stephen. And I wonder, have you seen um, this? I, I understand it's the premiere, so will this be this the first, first time? Yeah, to see how the impact the film will have on people. What what are you... Are it's you, equal parts exhilarating and terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've both seen it. We've had that um, privilege of, of being able to, to check it out on a little screen at least and it's um, a wonderful film and uh, will any of the participants be part of of the premiere tonight? Yeah I think Arnie Rita Wright's coming which you know she'll be I think she'll be bringing a couple of her grandchildren I mean all the ladies have seen the film they're really proud of it which is really I mean a relief for us because it's their story we're representing and they're really happy with it so makes us happy with it. Was there a sense from them that they really hadn't been able to to tell this story before to people who would would listen and and I mean to have that sort of audience that a film provides? Yeah well they have spoken to different panels over the year when you know there has been that investigation of stolen wages but not on a scale like this no but I think they were just ready to talk and ready to tell their story and I mean although it was harrowing we had a lot of fun you know on the road and they're cheeky older ladies (laughs) you know so they pull you up every now and then and you know the whole process of making a film I go just one more time they go you're a liar you said one more time three times ago (laughs) (laughs) so that was fun I think they they thought we were totally mad but then when they seen it at the end they went ah okay so you wanted to focus on women in this film yeah yeah I mean that's what the project like Mitch Stanley he brought the film he had it all that was his baby and then, I mean, we could have opened it up to, um, you know, men as well, but then it gets too big and then you, I think if you lessen the characters, you can in, make the emotions stronger if too many people are in there talking. So I think, and I think the ladies were a really good fit. You know, they all had different experiences but similar experience. When it's all sort of, when the jigsaw's put together, you notice it's all a similar story and it's, but they all came out of it you know, they're still strong and passionate, and but wounded, but living yeah. life. Yeah, and I think the, um, the various attitudes towards motherhood spoke to that. So similar experiences, uh, inability or difficulty in trusting in those, those intimate relationships in their lives, and it did come out with the attitudes towards motherhood, didn't it? Absolutely. Every one of those ladies said, you know, they, weren't, they were too frightened to have children. And they were frightened that one day, you know, the authorities would come and steal their children. It also affected their relationships with men. You know, Valerie takes a great, tells a great story, you know, when she got into Sydney and run a bit of a muck there. I won't give it away, but I love that line, you know. Well, and also what was, um, was really telling, I guess, was 
the, the, the process and, and the effect that, that assimilation and integration practices have on people because these women from a very young age as children were told that, um, you know, they had to basically aspire to be white, that white people were superior to Aboriginal people and then there's a part in the film where, where they, you know, they're off the... Um, the, the farm and they encounter Aboriginal people in the street and they're kind of frightened of them because even they have that, that stigma that they've lived with and been told that, that they're lesser. Yeah, Aunty Rita Wright talks about that also, Aunty Rita Wenberg, and I'd never heard that before. Like, when we're doing the interview, when she said that, like, when she walked through Redfern and there was Aboriginal people on the side of the road, she, she crossed the road because she was frightened of them, of the free Aboriginal people. The, that, that when she said the free Aboriginal yeah. people, that really hit home for me yeah i mean in in the room when we do the interview the whole crew just went you could just feel this thing in the room and it was like i'd never heard anyone say that before mm. and it's true i mean that's the um cause of being institutionalized and just being bashed around the head to say aboriginal people are worthless and the only thing you're good for is to mop somebody's floor mm. Well, um, this is a film screening at, at MIF tonight and later this week on Thursday, as Carly mentioned, it's um, sold out, unfortunately, for people who still want to see it. But is there plans for a future screening on, on television or at cinemas? Yep. Well, we have our broadcaster uh, is NITV, so I think it's going to be screening later this year. I'm not ex- sure exactly of the dates, but please keep an eye out for it. We will and we'll let people know about it. And um, congratulations on the film and to the whole crew and to the women um, who participated. It's um, a very important film, a very important um, um, part of Australia's history. And um, Stephen McGregor is the director of Servant or Slave, which screens at MIF. And thank you so much for coming into Triple R today. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.